and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to you. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. Who here has ever had something really bad happen? I don't just mean your run-of-the-mill, you know, uh, my alarm didn't go off this morning, but something that really rocked your world for that period of time. Everybody. Everybody. Does that come as a surprise to anybody that everyone's had something seriously happen in their life, something tragic even happen in their life? No, it doesn't. Because that's part of life. That's part of life. And even for the Christian, even for the believer, that is a part of life. Although sometimes believers... um, seem to think that maybe it shouldn't. And I'm not quite sure why they would ever come to that conclusion when you can't find a single person in the Bible that you don't have some record of something bad happening to them if we have much detail about their life at all. You know, David had some bad things happen to him. Certainly, Joseph had more than his share of bad things happen to him. And, of course, you know, the guy who had the worst day ever, Job, you know, he had all the bad things that anybody would ever want to have happen or not want to have happen, happen to him. That happens. Life happens. And tragedy happens. And there are those days where, you know, some things happen that you, you just wonder how you might even ever go on. What do you do when your whole world seems to blow up around you? What do you do when that real crisis hits? How do you respond to that? How do you manage to go on? Some people, they barely do. And some people find it impossible to go on tragically. And yet, for as much as all of that's true, in Philippians chapter 4, in verse 4, God tells us to do something that just seems that, boy, God, did you know that this stuff happens? In Philippians chapter 4, and in verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord when everything's going well. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always. Always. And again I say, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Um, It's interesting that that statement's made, and interesting in the way that it's made even. When I was in school, I was an English major, and, you know, I was taught grammar. I'm not sure if they teach all this stuff still or not. But we're taught about the four different types of sentences. How many of you know about the four different types of sentences? You have declarative, interrogative, declarative, that's just a statement. Interrogative, that's a question. Exclamatory, oh my. And the fourth being imperative. 
which is a command. What kind of a statement, what kind of a sentence is that one? Is that an exclamatory? No, it's not. There's no exclamation point there. That's always a giveaway. There's no question mark, so we can rule out, you know, interrogative, interrogative. And it's not just a simple statement. It is an imperative, a command, a command. Now, it's not like, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's not that kind of command. But it is something that's put to us as this is something we need to do. This is something we have to do in life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. How can you do that? How can you do that? You know, there's people you meet in life that if you don't know the details of their life, um, you would be under the impression that nothing bad ever happened to them. They're always happy. They're always full of joy. And then there's other people that you would think, oh my goodness, that poor soul, they, they just got that rain cloud following them around, you know? They're like Eeyore. <laughs> and yet, really, if you talk to each one long enough, you'd probably discover that they both had their equal share, or perhaps close to it, of bad things that have occurred in life. And some people, they manage to have that happen, have bad things happen, and yet they're not constantly depressed. They're not negative. They're not downcast. They're not downtrodden. And other people, you know, that just allow the just walk around with the weight of the world on their shoulders all the time. A lot of it has to do with attitude. Um, just before we were starting this evening, very, very timely, Dylan told me that this past weekend, he was somebody, just, more than one person, just beat the living daylights out of him. They hit him, they, they threw him around, they beat him up, and he said, it was awesome. <laughs> now, you, you may think that Dylan has just, you know, kind of gone to that other extreme and he's, you know, needs some kind of other medication here. But he was talking about having participated in a judo tournament. Oh, now that puts it in context. And you see, that's something he did voluntarily. And we understand that, right? But you know, there's a lot of things in life that going into it, that attitude you have about it, gets, just so colors your perspective of it. In life, we need to go through life with the right perspective, the right attitude, that no matter what happens, we're not going to allow our joy to be stolen from us. Because that's so much the design of what's happening there. So much of what our adversary would like to do is just rob us of all the joy in life. You know, Paul was a fella who went through some things. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And he's not the only one. I said everybody that you learn about in the Word of God went through stuff. And, you know, there's many other people in the, in the New Testament that you could point to as well. But we've got here in, first, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, sort of this concise summary of a lot of the bad stuff that Paul dealt with. Beginning in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, 
Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. I worked harder than anybody. I had more exhausting work than any of the other guys that you're thinking about is what he's saying. In stripes, above measure. Stripes, you know, that wasn't like, you know, the polo shirt or the prison uniform. This is beatings, you know, whipping, you know, with whips, and, and he gets into more detail about it. In prisons, more frequent. In deaths, oft. Of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. 39 lashes, because the law was you couldn't whip somebody more than 40 times, so they'd do 39, so the case they miscounted, they wouldn't be the one who would get that punishment, which was the, the case if you did go over that 40. Five times he was beaten with 39 lashes. Five times. You know, you picture that, you, you've probably seen the movie, they got the guy tied to the post, and there they are whipping him. Well, they did that to him five times, nearly 200 times, stripes. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Now, this is a separate kind of beating. One is like a black snake, that kind of whipping. The beating with rods were those cat and nine tails type of whip that they would tie pieces of bone or metal into the end of it. Three times he went through that. Once was I stoned. Now, that wasn't the kind that some of you guys are familiar with. You know, that was where the, they were trying to kill him. They were trying to kill him, you know, stoning him to death. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. Three times, three times. Make me want to stay on the land, you know. <laughs> three times he's in a shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in the ocean. A, night, a full night and the day floating around there, swimming around trying to get to shore. And... The Mediterranean, you know, it's not like there's no dangerous things in there. In journeyings often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. This poor guy couldn't go anywhere that he wasn't in some kind of danger, right? In weariness, verse 27, and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those that are without, besides all the things that he lacked, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. On top of all the stuff he's going through, he's responsible for all the believers a responsibility that means more to him than any of that other stuff he's facing. Verse 29, who is weak and I am not weak? <laughs> you know, you think that somehow I, I'm some, some different kind of creature? Who's weak? And I, you don't think I'm weak at times? You don't think I feel that way, he's saying? Mm. Who's offended and I burn not? Don't you think that it hurts me? Don't you think that... You know, I bleed and my feelings are hurt and I feel like, you know, just at the end of, of my rope. Don't you think that I face all that stuff? That's what he's saying. He went through a lot. Look at chapter 12. 
still in this context of having talked about this stuff in verse 7. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The thorn in the flesh, and if you go back to the first usage of that, how it was used before, you see that that term refers always to people. And it's referring to these people that did all this stuff to him. And they're called the messenger of Satan. The messenger of Satan because it's a spiritual battle. It is a spiritual battle. It says in Ephesians chapter 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And on the senses level, it looks like it is a five senses battle. It looks like it was some guy beating up Dylan. It looks like it's the person you're in an argument with or the person who, you know, says, I'm sorry, but we're laying you off. I'm sorry, but you're out of a job. Or whatever tragedy you occurred, the person that broke your heart. It looks like it's flesh and blood, but there is a spiritual reality in life behind all of those things. Life is spiritual. Life is spiritual. And boy, if, and the, the day will come when the Lord returns, when we won't have to deal with all this crap. <laughs> but right now, we're in this spiritual battle, and God wants nothing but the best for you, but we have an adversary, Satan, who does try to get at you. And he tries to do whatever he can. And he'll do everything he can to hinder the purposes of the true God. That's his motive. He'd like worship. Short of that, he'll try to get people to worship something other than him, other than the true God, so then he's ultimately getting it. And if he can't do that, then he'll at least do whatever he can to just hinder God's purpose. And God's purpose is that you would have a more abundant life, that you would have all of his blessings, all of his goodness, that you would enjoy all of his promises and benefits. And the adversary does what he can to keep that from happening. For verse 8. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice. Three times he went to God and prayed that it might depart from me. He prayed, God, I want this stuff to stop. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. We sang before this, my amazing grace. And God says that his grace is sufficient, that we have what we need wrapped up in that gift of God's grace. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. A literal of that is, my strength is made perfect in your inability to handle this Situate to handle things on your own. Well, I'll keep reading and then I'll explain more. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. Not that he was happy for the infirmities, not that he's glorying that all this bad stuff happening, but that he was able to rejoice always. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. 
Meaning that at those times when he faced that situation that was overwhelming, when it was beyond what he could handle, he wasn't limited to what he could handle. He wasn't limited to his own strength. You know, you read about all this stuff that happens in Paul's life, and you would think, oh my gosh, you know, he must have just been a miserable fella. But if you're at all familiar with the church epistles, that's, that's not the impression you draw about him. It's not at all what you see. You see him talking about his joy and his rejoicing. He's the one that by revelation wrote, Rejoice in the Lord always, always and again I say rejoice. He did that. He did that. And next time you're feeling like, well, I've got it pretty rough, <laughs> stop and think about that. Think about what he went through. Think about what he endured. And he wasn't the only one. You know, all of those, those apostles, Peter, James, John, they all faced that kind of hardship. Maybe not all to the same measure that he did. And yet, they were filled with joy because their eyes were locked into something else. They drew strength knowing that God's strength was theirs, that God made them more than conquerors, that they could overcome any situation because I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me, as it says in Philippians 4.13. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In life, if our focus is not just on ourselves, not just on our own abilities, but recognizing that we have something greater than that, that we have the strength of God and Christ in us, and if we recognize in life that this life is just a passing thing, and there's something so much greater coming, then we can handle whatever comes up and remain filled with joy. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The treasure that it's speaking about is this, this gift of Holy Spirit, this power of God, it's called. This gift that means it's Christ in you. And that's the treasure that we have. The treasure is that gift, that inner man. And the earthen vessel is just this mortal, physical body. We have this in this earthen vessel, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. See, you know, this stupid earthen vessel, this body, you know, frail as it is. And boy, it is frail. And the longer you have this vessel, the more frail it becomes and the more you recognize how frail it is. But that's okay. That's okay. Because we're getting a new one. We're getting a new one. And no matter what, we're not limited to our own strength. Verse 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. It's possible to not be distressed even though 
we're troubled on every side. We can't stop things from happening at times. Now, it talks about the shield of believing, and a lot of stuff doesn't occur as we're walking through life with that wonderful positive attitude, and that shield of believing keeps a lot of stuff from getting to us. But be aware, yeah, we're troubled on every side. Constantly, constantly, there are attacks. And yet, we're not distressed. We're not all stressed out because we've got this power. goes on to say, in verse 8, perplexed, but not in despair. We're perplexed. We're at times puzzled. At times you wonder, why did that happen? Why did that happen? And sometimes, you know, there's no good answer to that except we have an adversary. Sometimes you can figure out other things. Oh, I should have done this. I should have, I should have turned left when I went right, you know, in life. I made a bad decision here, okay? No surprise that that blew up in my face. I should have never done that in the first place. I kind of knew that, but I still went down that road. But even when that's the case, God can still put it back together for us. But there's times when we're perplexed, yet not in despair. Not in despair. We're not, even when we're puzzled, it's not that kind of, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Because we know that God causes us to triumph. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Persecuted. And persecuted means we're pursued. And, you know, that persecution, yeah, at times in the history of Christianity and in places now in the world, Christians face that kind of persecution where it is like they were, where they were being persecuted for their faith. But that persecution, whether it's that direct kind of persecution or it's just because the adversary does stuff, it's still persecution. When I came home today and found that my house and all my belongings had been destroyed in a fire um, and somebody had torched the house, that was persecution. Now, it wasn't that somebody did that because I was a Christian or believer. That wasn't the kind of persecution. They just did it probably because they enjoyed watching things burn. It didn't make me feel any better knowing that, though, did it? <laughs> and yet, you know, you know what? I, I, was, I was not forsaken. I knew that God still was with me. I knew that God would get me another house. God would get me another more stuff. He would replace those things, and he did. Verse 10. Oh, and verse 9. Cast down, but not destroyed. You know, you get knocked down, but you get up again, like the song says, right? <laughs> Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Yes, we, we, we you know, reflect that sufferings, but greater than that, we reflect that glory. <clears throat> Skip down to verse 16. <clears throat> For which cause we faint not. We don't give up. We don't just lay down and die. We don't quit. We don't reach that point in life where we throw up our hands and say, well, that's it. There's nothing more I can do. Or, God, if this... You know, if, if I'm a believer, if I'm a son of God, why is all this stuff happening? You've just forsaken me. We don't faint. We don't give up in our minds. We don't quit. But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. 
the outward man, the flesh, but the inward man, that Christ in us. That's renewed day by day. That can just get stronger and stronger and stronger. It's the only thing that does, you know. All of life, other than the spiritual life, you know, it reaches that point, you know, it's growing. You take that flower, you know, you plant the seed and it gets big, you see it come through the soil, and next thing you know, you got a stem, then you got the leaf, and then you've got that beautiful, beautiful flower, and that just lasts forever, doesn't it? No, it doesn't, you know. A couple days later, depending on the type of flower, you know, it starts to not look so pretty. <laughs> That's life. That's the physical life. All of physical life, the outward man perishes. But the spiritual is renewed day by day. That just can get stronger and stronger and stronger if you feed it. Verse 17 says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Our light affliction. It doesn't seem very light at the time, does it? You know, most when you face those days where the really serious stuff happens, it doesn't seem like a light affliction. It seems like the end of the world to us. You know, it's a funny thing. We were talking about this, I think, last week. Where Nick and, and Dylan and I were talking after fellowship about what drives people to the brink? You know, what drives people to the brink of, of being standing up on a building and thinking about jumping off? And, you know, the funny thing is, you know, if you look at what does get people to that point, there's some where you, you look at the situation and say, well, gosh, you can hardly blame them. And others that you say, why? It just makes no sense. That's so small. But you know what? That pain to anybody that's in that situation is just as real. That's the funny thing about it. God says it's all light affliction, whatever you're going through. As serious, as, as devastating as it may seem at the time, it's all when you compare it to something else. It doesn't matter what do you compare it to. What do you compare it to? If you compare it to the standard of just life now and everything that's important now, and if that's all that's important to you, then it doesn't at all seem light. But if you keep it in the perspective of eternity, which is what it's talking about here, that's when it, it doesn't seem to be quite as devastating. It says, while we look not, okay, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's what Paul did, and that's how we could get through that stuff, and that's how Peter could. That they looked at the things that were not seen. They didn't look at just this temporary life, which really, in the scheme of eternity, is just but a moment. And when you compare what we go through compared to what we're going to have for all of eternity, it isn't all that significant. Yes, it means a lot to us, and I'm not trying to minimize or trivialize pain, but to handle those heavy times, to handle those tragedies, to get through that crisis, above all, and there's many other things that are in terms of renewed mind principles that can come into play in this, but above all, 
we have to have that hope of Christ's return and knowing what we're going to enjoy for all of eternity, first and foremost, in our minds. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And again, think about the writer, the author's God, but think here about the writer of this. Peter, and you know, he went through his own stuff, being imprisoned, being beaten, and so forth. In verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us, we are born again, again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope, biblically, is always spoken not about something that you kind of wish for, like people say, you know, that looks, you know, it's a 100% chance of rain. They look out the window and say, I hope it doesn't rain. But hope isn't used biblically that way. It's used about something that is a certainty, just not presently available. And the great hope it speaks about is the return of Jesus Christ. And that's what this is talking about. Verse 4, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, those now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We rejoice with joy unspeakable when we think about that hope. When we look, when we turn our eyes to Jesus, when we think about Him and what He's given to us in that day when we will be with Him for all of eternity, and all of this will be but a dim memory. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.